The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good morning. It's nice to be back with uh, the Sunday morning online community. I hope you can hear me. Um, do do say something uh, in the chat if if the audio is still low. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, it's nice to hear that IMC is opening up again uh, for in person events and for for those of of you who are local. Um, I was, uh, okay, good. Um, uh, sounds like the audio is, is, is a little bit better. Um, one of the, you know, I mean, there's so many things that have changed since, uh, the pandemic started. And, and of course, um, the human loss has been, you know, the, the, the most important thing. Um, but one of the, one of the aspects of our community and meditation practice that I've missed is just sitting in silence with other people, you know, and I think there's something very powerful about being in a room together but not, you know, it's, it's unusual that you are just with others, but also in the kind of intimacy and solitude of one's own experience. Um, but there's something, there's a powerful field that can be created um, when we sit in silence and stillness with other people. And I think it helps us to, sometimes it can help us to go beyond what we might be capable of, of, of doing when we're by ourselves. You know, I know for myself, I'm sitting and the phone makes a noise or someone says something or the doorbell rings or, or you know, it's very, it's, it's very tempting to, um, you know, just go with that. But, it, but in a space when everyone is together and, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, sometimes at Gil's Talks, I think there's 100, 200 people, maybe 150. So it's powerful. It's powerful. And um, I think it's going to take a while before we get up to those kinds of capacities again because of COVID. But the other, the other aspect of in-person practice that I was just thinking about was... Um, the way um, my Zen teacher, um, who was mentioned in the bio, Sojin, Sojin Mel Weitzman, he passed away about a year ago, but he had this custom at the end of a sitting, this is at the Berkeley Zendo, Berkeley Zen Center, at the end of a sitting, um, the bells would ring, ding, 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 three bells, and would make the bows. And then Mel would get up, and I think make some bows to the altar. And then he would walk over very silently to the door, to the door that people would enter and exit. And then everyone would file out silently, 
But as you got to the doorway, you would be faced with Mel, who was just standing there at the door. And the custom was that you would bow to each other. So student and teacher would meet and look at each other and bow together. You know, and it's a little thing, but it was such a beautiful practice. And the years that I was going to sit early in the morning during during the week at the Berkeley Zen Center, this is probably more than 15 years ago, um, that was a highlight for me, was to, you know, I don't remember much of the sittings. I don't remember much of, of what else went on. But that moment of this connection and this meeting, um, it was so special and felt so um, just like this wonderful, like, point that kind of tied everything together, and to just to just kind of connect and be seen, and so. So I think for me, that kind of interaction with others is, is a big part of the practice. Um, and you know, we, we've, uh, we're, we're making do with, with what we have now and the situation that, that we're in and very grateful for this uh, capacity to connect, uh, online. But I, I will be very happy when we can, you know, be together again and and that kind of meeting. Um, so Mel, this this Zen teacher who was the abbot of the Berkeley Zen Center and San Francisco Zen Center for many years, uh, has been on my mind. Um, I just came back from Japan, uh, which is more of a family trip and. We were very fortunate to be able to be there for about uh, five weeks. And one of the places we visited was Rinso-in Temple, which is the home temple of Suzuki Roshi, who was the founder of San Francisco Zen Center. And um, San Francisco Zen Center was also a big part of Gil's life and Gil's practice. And, and Gil's teacher was also Mel. Weitzman. So, um, in visiting Rinsoin, one of the things we did with um, Hoitsu Suzuki Roshi, who is the son of uh, Shunmu Suzuki, is we did uh, some chanting for Mel and kind of a little memorial service, and it was, it was very sweet. And um, and. Yeah, in, in thinking about um, how Mel's teachings have influenced me and how I practice meditation and Vipassana meditation, um, this word came up, which was a word that um, another friend has used, used to describe Mel. And the word is imperturbability. It's a little bit of a kind of clunky word, I guess. It's a beautiful word. But imperturbability, what does it mean to be imperturbable? And I think there was a way that Mel, who 
um, kind of modeled this, not so much through words, but through his, his presence, his energy, his actions. And I think that there is a quality of being imperturbable that is a very beautiful aspect of this practice. Um, there's a line in a, in a, in a very well-known Chinese Buddhist teaching called, uh, it's a long poem called the Xin Xin Ming, which is usually translated as trust in mind. And you may be familiar if the, the poem opens with the line, the great way is not difficult for one who has no preferences. Great way is not difficult for one who has no preferences. Which sometimes it's translated as the great way is not difficult if you just don't pick and choose. And so what does this mean to not have preferences or to let go of picking and choosing or to let go of preferences? Um, for me, there's some way that I connect this to Mel's imperturbability, but it's not, it's not what maybe what we might think at first. I mean, it's, So the great way is not difficult for one who has no preferences. We could, we could receive that teaching and think, well, as long as I have preferences, <laughs> this way is going to be very difficult. And the way to practice is to get to a place where I don't have any preferences. And I think there's, there's some element of, of truth in that, because the more we sit and the more we become mindful and aware and connected to ourselves and to others, you know, we can just start to see how our own attachment, my attachment to what I want and what I don't want, what I like and what I don't like, um, can create suffering. And, and there's an element of traditional Buddhist training, certainly monastic training, that is inviting us, or maybe we could say compelling us, to let go of our preferences. You know, when you're served food in a Buddhist monastery, you know, there's, it's not like someone comes with a menu and says, okay, what would you like today? And do you, do you want the scrambled eggs with... Um, do you want the eggs with salmon or, you know, mushrooms? You know, it's like, boom, you get your meal and it's plopped down in front of you, right? And that's the practice. The practice is to um, take what's given, to receive what's given. And, you know, in a, in a, in a monastery, there is a, a schedule, you know, daily schedule of, of meditations and study and work and rest and bath time and everything is on the schedule. So it's not like, oh, you know, what, what shall I do today? What do I feel like? You know, it's like you just bell rings, 
you do this, the bell rings, you do that. And you wear the same thing, the same kind of robes, and your hair is the same, and it's buzzed, very short, or, or shaved. And so there's a whole lifestyle that is um, helping us to let go of our preferences and just enter the moment and just take what's given, receive what's given. So it's a beautiful training. It's a great training. It's a place where we can see, you know, in the, the times that, that I've been in that system and done that training, you know, I, I could really see these places of resistance. I didn't want to wake up at whatever, 3.45 a.m. I didn't want to do this. I didn't want to do that. Um, but you just do it. You just do it. And in just doing it, something gets softened in us. And there's this element of freedom where we're not so controlled, we're not so tight around our preferences. Um, so, it, so it's a beautiful practice. Um, but then I think that maybe there's a little bit of a of, I don't I don't know if it's a deeper meaning or another meaning of this to be to be one who is um, without preferences and and maybe this gets illuminated if we change the the word preferences to thinking so if we could say the great way is not difficult for one who has no thoughts or one who has no thinking and you say Okay, you know, maybe, maybe there are, there are ways in meditation to access a place in us, you know, or place in the universe that's so still, that's so silent, that no thoughts arise, right? You know, there's no interpretation. There's no, there's just the, the kind of the purity of, of this moment, of this experience, without being kind of drawn into discursive thinking. That can be beautiful. Um, and, and, and certainly that, that there can be a lot of beauty and, and wisdom and learning in, in, in those kinds of states. Um, however, um, those are temporary, right? Those are something that may, may arise, but I don't think anyone is living or would necessarily want to live in a way that we didn't, weren't able to think. We didn't have any thoughts. And so it's not so much about emptying the mind of thoughts, Maybe it's not so much about living a human life and being a human being who doesn't have any preferences, but it's more about our relationship to those thoughts and our relationship to our preferences. And so the idea is that what is, what is it like, what does it mean for our thinking to not be a barrier, to not be a problem? And I think there's a way 
of, of meditating. Maybe there's a way of knowing ourselves, of meeting ourselves, and there's a way of being alive, of being a person. That we, to have a healthy relationship to our thoughts. That we, we use thinking, we appreciate thinking, we, we need thinking. But we're not, we're not a prisoner of our thinking. We don't automatically think every, believe every thought that we have is true. We don't blindly follow every thought. We, we've seen into the nature of thoughts. You know, thoughts are so ephemeral, so empty. You can think anything, right? You know, if you've been meditating for a little while, you realize you're going to have some weird thoughts. <laughs> Doesn't mean they're true, right? You know, and so maybe there's a way that we come into a relationship with our preferences that we, we're accepting, you know, we're never going to fully be done with preferences. Um, it's kind of part of being a human being. But um, that our preferences are not a barrier anymore. That there's this kind of full acceptance of who we are, of our humanity, that we understand ourselves maybe in a way so thoroughly that we understand how, how preferences function. And um, these two are, are empty. These two are impermanent. These two are not better or worse than anything else. And so to really be living a life of one who has no preferences or one who doesn't pick and choose maybe is not so much about everything is the same to me. Um, I like or everything equally. I don't have an opinion what I eat or how I feel or um, pleasure and pain is exactly the same to me. No, that's, that's not, that's not it. But it's more like I'm willing to take this moment, this practice, this life as a whole thing, as a whole package. I'm not dividing life up into this is good and this is, this is a problem. And I think about this because one of the ways that um, many people who knew Mel, Zen teacher, describe Mel as, is that Mel didn't see problems. You know, he didn't approach whether it was a community situation or life or another person is that you have all these problems or I have all these problems. He was just relating to what was in front of him. It was going to just deal with what was in front of him. Oh, this is such a big problem. I don't know what to do. And, you know, a problem is when we don't like it and we don't want it and we're splitting it off and it shouldn't be happening, right? And so even when Mal was sick and had cancer, um, he would just deal with the situation in front of him and the next thing. And 
over time, his, um, you know, as he, as he got more sick and the cancer maybe spread or his, his functioning declined, he, he wasn't looking like, oh, and then this is happening and this is going to happen and this is so bad. He was just like, okay, this is, this is what I have to do is get from here to there. And how am I going to move? And how are we going to do this? And, and so it was really inspiring in a way that um, to, just, to just deal with this moment and not label it as a problem. You know, it was just the, just the request of this moment. And when we meditate, we can either sit in a way that we have a lot of problems. Oh God, I'm, I think monkey mind and I'm thinking so much and I'm fantasizing or I'm thinking of the past and this hurts and that hurts. Or it's like, it's just what's happening. And we can just accept what's happening and find how, how can I relate to this? How can I be with this? So it's like this dance. Every moment is this dance. And we're, we're relating, we're adjusting, we're interacting. And so, you know, so that's another meaning, maybe, of to be one who has no preferences. It doesn't mean that we don't have any preferences, but it means that our preferences are, um, are not a problem, that we're not captive to our preferences. Uh, and maybe, maybe that can manifest it's in sometimes as a, as a kind of imperturbability, just this solidity that we have the confidence and we have a trust that we can meet whatever, whatever this moment brings. We may not like it. We may not enjoy it, but we can meet it. Just the way Mel was meeting each person as they filed out of the meditation hall. And just this wonderful eye contact and bow. And it was always different, you know? It's always different. Each person is totally different, has their own energy. Each moment is different. Um, don't get locked into thinking that we're the same. It's going to be the same. I mean, you know, the problems are all the same. It's always new. It's always different. And that was one of the great aspects of Mel was, was this sense of just this wide acceptance of whoever was uh, in front of him. And uh, I've tried to learn from that and, and emulate that. Um, I wanted to end by um, sharing this poem that I came across last night, which is of one of um, Mel's, I think, I think longtime students or, or Dharma, Dharma friends. Uh, her name is Baz Bazia Petnik. And um, the poem is called Ordinary Mel is the Way. 
you've probably you may have heard this this teaching, this Buddhist teaching, Zen teaching, which is ordinary mind is the way. And it's a wonderful teaching that basically is pointing us back to this ordinary moment. You know, often we're looking for something special. We're looking for some special state that's going to solve our problems, right? Or it's like anything but this state. <laughs> it's got to be something better than this. And so ordinary mind is saying everything we need, every all of the teaching, all of the Dharma is right here. Teachings of impermanence, interconnection, emptiness, peace, love. Where else could it be if it's not right here, right? In this ordinary moment, this ordinary body. So ordinary mind is the way. So this is ordinary Mel is the way. I have been watching him for many years. Ordinary Mel is the way. The way he is with short people. The way he is with tall people. The way he is with important people. There aren't any important people. The way he is with unimportant people. There aren't any unimportant people. The way he is with dogs. The way he is with Buddha. The way he is with Dharma. The way he is with Sangha. The way he is with illness. The way he teaches. Open-handed, patient, kind. The way he teaches, close-handed, strict, exacting. The way he shows up for ceremonies. The way he shows up for work meetings. The way he is with Hoitsu. The way he, the way he was with Okusan. The way he is with cooking. The way he is with tea. The way he is with lineage the way he is with text, the way he is with Buddha, the way he is with Dharma, the way he is with Sangha, the way he is with breath. This is a, this is a photo, if you can see. So this is now, and this is Okusan, who was the, um, the wife of Mel's teacher, Suzuki Roshi. And she passed away say about maybe 10 years ago, and I think she was almost 100 years old. Maybe she was 99 or something, 98, 99. Um, and Mel was 91 when he passed away last year. It's, it's funny for me, that first line, the way, the, way, the way he is with short people, the way he is with tall people, Mel wants to, you know, so Mel was, I guess, kind of short, I don't know, for American man. But he once told me that he really enjoyed very tall students. <laughs> he seemed to, he had a really good connection with students who were unusually big and tall. And so I, I don't know if, if Basia knew that or, but this, the way he is with short people, the way he is with tall people. So, um, what is it to be imperturbable? What is it to uh, not try to 
get rid of our thinking or get rid of our preferences, but to come into harmony with our thinking, to come into harmony with our preferences, that, that they're not a barrier anymore. Part of, part of this moment, part of who we are. And part of the Dharma. So it's kind of what I wanted to share this morning. Thank you very much. And I think we have a few minutes. I don't know if um, there might be a few questions, but you're welcome to type in something in the chat and it will make its way to me. Um, well, we just wait and see if, see if there's any questions. I did want to share something about, you might have heard this teaching in Buddhism about self-power and other power. Self-power is kind of the, the idea that um, when we practice, it's sort of up to us to make an effort, be aware, be present, let go of what needs to be let go of, build up and cultivate what we need to build up. And so this is, you know, it's kind of something we do. And that's, you know, I think important, an important side of practice. And then there's this idea of other power. And it's like of this radical surrender and this radical uh, giving over to and entrusting and that we can never really know reality. You know, we're always limited in this body and mind. And so it's like giving, giving, giving over to uh, the universe and um, not needing to figure things out, not needing to master anything. And um, so what, what, where do you fall on this spectrum of self-power and other power? Um, I mean, I, I, maybe we could say that a balanced practice, you know, has elements of both of these. You know, clearly... There's something we need to do. There's a kind of effort and an energy that we bring to the practice, which is important. You know, our intention is so important. But then I think the danger of just self-power is we kind of can believe that it's all up to me. It's all up to us. And if something is not happening the way I want it to, what's my fault? I need to try harder. And if something wonderful happens, it's like, wow, wow, I'm so great. I'm a great meditator because I can get so concentrated. And I remember Mel would get very angry if, I, you know, angry is the right word, but he could be, he was very um, alert to the danger of kind of building up an ego around our practice. I'm so great because I'm doing this or I'm doing that. Or I'm sitting every day or I'm great or I'm getting really concentrated. 
And, you know, Suzuki Roshi famously said, don't, don't ever think that you sit zazen. Zazen is a meditation. It's zazen sits zazen. You know, dharma practices dharma. It's not me. It's not the small me. And so maybe the self, we need the self. And then maybe there's, we need to be able to let go and trust and let, let things unfold and not try to control and figure everything out. And that's the other power. So, um, question, did you or Mel practice with Thich Nhat Hanh over the years? No, um, I, you know, I, I don't know. Mel, I'm sure I met him because I know Thich Nhat Hanh, um, in the seventies and eighties came to Zen Center and came to Tassajara and I think was, was kind of a consultant or a mediator when Zen Center had various, um, difficulties and scandals. And so I'm sure, I'm sure Mel interacted with him and I, I'm, I know he had great respect for, for Thich Nhat Hanh. One of the practice periods at Tassajara that I was with Mel, when Mel was the teacher there, we studied um, a Thich Nhat Hanh uh, book. So, um, So thank you, Nancy, for the question. Andrew says, is the teaching on no preferences also about, also about cultivating a healthy faith and trust in one's teacher community and a wisdom of teachings? Um, yeah, I think it is. I mean, I think there's a connection um, between this quality of trust and sometimes, you know, faith or trust or confidence. Um, when we have no trust, then we can, it's all we have is our preferences, basically. <laughs> you know, we don't have any other point, place, vantage point to rest. And so we're pulled, you know, but when we, when we can trust this practice and all of the things, you know, the community and the teachings and that it's okay, it's going to be okay. We don't have to just blindly get, be pulled around by what we want and what we don't want. That it's okay to be still and to, and to sit in that not knowing and sort of let the moment happen to me, you know, that's a different, it's a different energy. So, um, um, and so thank you, Andrew. Um, Marlene asks, what is the best way for us to cross-check our thoughts? Might it be best to just sit with thoughts, not focus on doing something you know, I 
I think one of the most valuable learnings from meditation is how to be with our thinking, you know, and how to not act on a thought is so powerful. It's like that's a place of freedom. A thought comes up, ah, oh, I need to scratch my nose. My nose is itching. And in 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 some in some meditation centers there's a big emphasis on not moving. You know, and again, this is a great it doesn't mean that we're never gonna move in our life and we're just gonna be totally still. Of course not. But it's a practice of getting some freedom from our preferences. So to be still, to be very still, and the thought comes up, I need to move. I need to scratch my nose. My foot is falling asleep. And if we have this strong intention not to move, then we notice. It's like we, we notice the thought more clearly about moving. If we just think, oh, I'm going to sit and move when I feel like it, well, we're not going to really note it. We're just going to kind of scratch. And, but if we have this intention to be still, we're going to notice that thought. And if, we, if we're lucky enough to see the thought as a thought, then we have a choice. You know, how, what am I going to do? Do I let it go? Do I label it as a uh, thinking? Do I act on it? Do I not act on it? So to see a thought as a thought, to see thinking as thinking, right there creates a place of choice, a place of freedom. And I, when I think about mindfulness and awareness, one of the greatest gifts is that it, simply that it gives us more choice. It gives us choice where we didn't have choice before. So when thinking arises, it's wonderful to notice, notice thoughts as thoughts. Um, we don't have to necessarily get so involved in their content, but to just notice, oh, this is thinking. How, how am I relating to it? How can I relate to it? Um, I think we can come to a place where we're not bothered by our thinking. You know, thoughts are going to happen in the same way that there's a sound of, of the traffic on the road, there's a sound in the other room, you know. Thoughts will happen. So to not be bothered by our thinking, to not be bothered by our preferences, um, this is great. It's a great, great gift of practice. Um, so um, maybe just one more question from Wayne. Uh, how can I not talk so much? Yeah, yeah, you and me both, Wayne. Um, I think the realm of talking and com conversation, communication is 
that's sort of like the advanced mindfulness practice. So first of all, I would say, um, don't be too hard on yourself. Um, one of one of the one of the, the great tricks or tips or tools that that I when I'm lucky I remember is if I'm in conversation with someone, especially if there's a sense that it may be a little bit charged or a little bit difficult or there's whatever some energy or doesn't even have to be conflict some other some energy around it is to keep some percentage of the awareness in my own body. You know, and it's very easy if you're in a conversation, we just pour, the attention just pours out into the other person or into what we're going to say or they're speaking and we're thinking about what we want to say. But if I can keep, you know, 40%, 60%, 80% of the attention, the more difficult the conversation, the, the higher the percentage needs to be. If I can keep some percentage of the awareness in my own body, in my own face, my own body language, in my breathing, that makes a tremendous difference for me, I've noticed. And then I can actually take in what's being said. And my response is not just automatic, I'm thinking. It's actually coming from a little bit of a just kind of coming from the belly rather than just coming from the head um, or coming from the heart, ideally, not just the head. So, yeah, you know, play with that maybe. Um, so, thank you very much. Um, appreciate it with you and this opportunity to share a little bit about my teacher and 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 uh, his his Dharma way and I wish for all of us this uh, this gift of of imperturbability and uh, to be the one who uh, is is not um, is not limited by our preferences. We're not limited by our limitations. Thank you.